2: It's great to be a raccoon. I know, right? We do what we want. We sleep all day. We're smarter than dogs. We're smarter than birds. Smarter than cats. Smarter than possums. Smarter than... I get it. This is not some Princeton alumni interview. You don't gotta go on. I'm just passing the time. So, what's new with you? (laughs) The Torkelsons
3: got bungee cords.
2: Down the street? The Torkelsons?
3: Yeah, putting them on all the garbage cans.
2: Because we would never, you know, we would never be able to get a bungee cord off a garbage can. <laughs> 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 the bungee cord. <laughs> bungee cord. <laughs> so <Ooh>. simple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my sides are killing me. <laughs>
1: you want to hit a bird feeder?
2: No way. The Sheketov just ordered Chinese. I saw the delivery truck. They always throw away half the Kung Pao chicken. Uh, that always goes right through me. I like the sesame noodles, though, and they never finish them. Ah, she's on a diet. That's because his cousin visited last month, and she was so thin. Sabrina, do you think they know we talk about them? I don't think they know much, frankly. I mean, they work all day to make money so they can buy stuff that we eat for free. Eh, it'll be two hours before we get Chinese food. What do you feel like doing? Well, it does look like the Nestle Roads are watching Netflix. We can go over to their window. Maybe they'll pick Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, I love that movie. It speaks to me. Why does it speak to me? It's a classic, like that Beatles song, Rocky whatever. Hey, we could listen to the show. It's all about us. You want to do that? And now he can't get the raccoons in his neighborhood to use Purell. Colin McEnroe.
4: Yeah, they're always washing their hands. And I was thinking, you know, really, this is, I leave the Purell out for them. It's much more efficient. Uh, But apparently that's not why they wash their hands. One of the many things we'll be explaining to you today, we're doing an entire show about raccoons. I won't lie. This has been a summer in which raccoons have come into my yard and not want it to go away. And so uh, the women with whom I share my life is her Pequot name, Uh, and I began researching raccoons. One thing we found out right away was there was no way to do a show about raccoons without talking to somebody somebody in Toronto. I don't really know exactly why that is, but we're going to find that out. Uh, But it is like raccoons and Toronto. Uh, And uh, so joining us from, in fact, uh, CBC Radio Studios in Toronto is Michael Pettit, uh, Associate Professor of History of Science and Psychology at the University of Toronto. And then also joining us here in studio is Mark Seth Lender. Uh, He's a producer and presenter for Living on Earth. PRI's Environmental News Magazine, and Jay Kaplan, uh, director of the Roaring Brook Nature Center in Canton. All of these people know quite a bit about raccoons. But, um, you know, Michael Pettit, maybe we should just start there, though. I mean, why? I, I do know that Toronto is supposedly the raccoon capital of, the, of North America, but I'm not sure why that is. What, what is it with you guys and raccoons?
5: I'm not exactly sure why. Um, we certainly have a huge raccoon population. Uh, We also have a number of researchers that are interested in raccoons. Mm. Uh, But certainly, raccoons have become a huge part of kind of Toronto's identity and uh, even part of our advertising. Absolutely. And and so one of the things that's been going on in Toronto, we might as
4: well sort of uh, cut right to this chase anyway, um, uh, Michael, is in fact a contest, uh, because in fact, the one thing that we all know that raccoons do is they do like to get into the garbage, as the introduction suggested, a mere bungee cord does not really deter them. So you guys have been trying to figure out what, a lock that's easy enough so that it doesn't become a hindrance for people trying to open their garbage cans, but does become a hindrance for raccoons. How's that going?
5: Um. Uh, right now, we're we're claiming a, a a certain kind of victory. So, yeah, so one thing Toronto does have is a, a green re- uh, recycling program. So, in Toronto, we have garbage collection, recycling collection and green compost collection. And it's, it's particularly these green compost bins that have been the great site of the battle. Um, you know, we have these green compost bins which had kind of a very simple kind of latch on them, and this, these were ones that were kind of particularly targeted. And now we have a, a new one that's been slowly rolled out. It hasn't reached most of the city yet, but it's being kind of beta tested in different neighbourhoods where it has a more kind of uh, a, a turning locking mechanism which promises to hold the creatures at bay.
4: So, Mark, one thing that we know about raccoons is uh, well, a couple of things that kind of go together. One of them is that they're kind of, they're like an edge animal, right? They're they're a wild animal, but they do very very well in, in situations that would not be classified as wild. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Well,
3: I I don't think it's that unique to raccoons. Uh if you go to Ahviat, which is on the northwest corner of Hudson Bay, you'll see polar bears happily patrolling the dump and eating there. Uh animals Animals generally, if, they're, if they have a certain kind of intelligence and a certain sort of dexterity, uh, do well around us. And um, if you watch raccoons and their persistence and their sort of trial and error method, I don't, I don't find that surprising. I think they're, they're very well adapted to, uh, uh, to work within our surroundings.
4: Well, it helps also that they basically eat what we eat, which is everything. That they're omnivores, correct? Yeah, yeah. and 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 so uh, Jay. And the other thing that we know about raccoons, into which Michael is already alluding, is that they're they're dexterous and uh, and they're they seem to have kind of an intuitive grasp, even of how things work. Well, they're just Colin. They're just such amazing creatures. Um, bungee
1: cords are no problem. Yeah. Um, we actually don't have as much problem with raccoons out our way since they switched. The traditional garbage can, of course, is passe, and now we have these big green dumpsters that have slippery sides. They have trouble getting up them um, in most cases. But they can – people keeping pet food outside or – now the new thing is everybody wants backyard chickens. Boy, the raccoons love those.
4: (laughs) All right. So, by the way, as we go along here, if you have questions or perhaps uh, a completely disturbing or amusing uh, raccoon anecdote, you can call. Uh, We're live here in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. I'll say it again, 860-275-7266. If you have trouble dialing it, and have the raccoon do it for you. They have very dexterous hands, very uh, good with their fingers. Uh, and uh, you can also tweet at us, at WNPR Colin. So, so, Michael, let's talk a little bit more about those hands. One of the things that, that I've become aware of, even just watching raccoons, and I had the opportunity to, to watch them a lot, is their hands work, obviously, as very, very dexterous hands, but it seems like there's almost something else going on. Like their hands are sensors somehow, that they're using their hands almost kind of the way we use have eyes and ears and noses.
5: Uh, absolutely. You know, humans are a very uh, visually oriented species. Um, not all uh, species uh, have that same kind of privileging of vision, as really raccoons can see very well at night. But absolutely, the raccoons, the way it kind of learns about the world, navigates the world is through its sense of touch. And so, yes, they're always kind of handling things and, you know, working things over as a key part of how they learn.
4: And, and, you know, there's this notion that they wash their food, but I read in at least one place that's not exactly right. What they do is they wash their hands in order to almost kind of resensitize them or soften them up so that they can uh, they can touch things with their hands.
5: Absolutely. So, you know, the raccoon's kind of uh, name in, in, in many uh, languages is, is kind of washer bear. Right. It's the idea that they kind of look like little bears and they had this sort of this habit seemingly of kind of wetting their food. And you know we've people have kind of followed up on that quite a bit, and you know they don't seem to actually wet their food, but it's precisely this—they're sort of wetting their hands uh, to sort of sensitize their paws as part of how they navigate uh, navigate their navigate their world.
4: Um, uh, Mark, um, another part of this is, I mean, look, if this were a hundred years ago or hundred fifty years ago, we'd probably be pretty clear about where we want animals to be and where we don't want them to be, right? You know, we we've got we're we're an agrarian society at that point, and a little bit of urbanization. But either way, we don't racco- want raccoons. We, want, we don't want any of this stuff around. We want we want to be able to farm our crops without a bunch of raccoons running around eating our chickens and and but we've sort of as we've become more suburban sentimentalized this process a little bit and it's kind of fun i think i think people sort of look out the window not everybody but some people look look out the window and there are these raccoons and it's sort of like oh this little taste of the wild is running around on my back porch
3: i think people do need animals but but i think you hit on the probably the the operative variable which is until relatively recently in human history Nature was something to be conquered and feared, and it really did have the best of us. And the shoe is now on the other foot. So when something wild shows up, um, for the most part, uh, rabies notwithstanding, mm-hmm. um, we we feel privileged rather than threatened. And even as far as the rabies risk goes, it's really just don't make physical contact, and you're, you're, you're reasonably safe. So um, I think we get to enjoy what at one time— would have been not only a nuisance, but a real threat to survival.
4: Well, Jay, probably enjoy up to a point. I don't know what kind of calls uh, you get, but um, first of all, I mean, we sort of need to acknowledge that the raccoons, yeah, I mean, the rabies could be a problem, but they're just, they're wild animals. They got all kinds of stuff crawling all over them. They got parasites on them. They got all kinds of stuff. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah,
1: no question about it. Um, There was a time before the rabies epidemic rolled into Connecticut when people were catching and trying to raise baby raccoons. And at one time, they were legal as pets in Connecticut, a really bad idea. Um, Full-grown raccoons will trash your house in no time at all. But because they live in close proximity to people, people find them in their attics. They will go into your chimney, and different people have different attitudes about raccoons. People think they're really cute and still that, until they start causing damage on their property, and that's when the phone calls start coming in.
4: Um, Yeah. And and in fact, um, you know, actually, when I was growing up, there was a book called Rascal by Sterling North. It was about a boy. It was about Sterling North's own childhood in Wisconsin where he raised a raccoon, although it ends with the raccoon getting old enough where Sterling North, the boy thinks, eh, got to put the raccoon in the canoe and. Take it someplace else and let it go. It can't be with me anymore. But I think what happens now, Jay, is we have YouTube. So people are on YouTube, and they see raccoons riding bikes, or they see raccoons jumping around on people's couches, or eating grapes at the dinner table, or there's like this story that's going on about raccoons that that leaves out the part that you just said. Well, I can tell you at one time at our
1: nature center, since we rehabilitate orphaned animals, we would rehabilitate numbers of raccoons every year, and it was a struggle. Um, These are animals that can't just be raised in a house and then turned outside. They won't know how to take care of themselves, and it was a very time-consuming effort. We no longer do that, but there are still a few raccoon rehabilitators in the state who are licensed to care for baby raccoons,
4: and they get more than they can handle. Um, I I would think so. Okay, so Michael, it's time also to talk about that intelligence thing, and all of our guests are going to say some things about this, but the first thing to say uh, is that uh, some of the research that's gone on in Toronto has to do also with questions about, well, you know, they used to talk about uh, city mouse and country mouse, that uh, there are these urban raccoons and country raccoons, and it seems... As though urban raccoons are just learning skill sets that would not occur to some raccoon in a rural environment prowling around, you know, the the banks of a river looking for crayfish. Uh,
5: absolutely. So this is some of the work of my York colleague Suzanne McDonald, who's been doing uh, fairly extensive work with urban raccoons and comparing them with more uh, rural raccoons. And just like us uh, human beings, uh, cities furnish incredibly rich and enriching environments in which to uh, raise. Uh, young raccoons and it's it provides them with all kinds of uh, problems to solve, um, challenges to meet, and so and the raccoons have very much adapted to urban life. So, for example, one thing that she found was that uh, you know raccoons sort of had a uh, a territory of about three city blocks. Basically, they were kind of bounded by large intersections. Uh, basically, raccoons would tend to not to cross. Large major thoroughfares to avoid the and kind of state of the side to the side street. So absolutely, raccoons have definitely accommodated themselves and grown into the urban environment.
4: And, and so this raises some questions, Michael. Uh, what, in, including, is something changing in a more uh, finely or, or a more ingrained way? I mean, there's sort of maybe two um, two ideas to invoke here. One of them is neuroplasticity. We know that. You know, I don't know, London cab drivers have these highly developed uh, hippocampuses. Uh, you know, their brains actually change because they're having to do certain kinds of mental tasks over and over again at a, a very extreme level. So we know that the brain, at least hum, the human brain, and I think the animal brain, can change structurally even in the course of a lifetime. And the other one is epigenetics. We also are starting to see instances in which those changes, rather than having to play out across the spectrum of natural selection, uh, that some of these changes might, might be taking shortcuts, basically right into the gene pool. So one of the questions, and I'm not expecting you to have some kind of pat dispositive answer to this, but one question that people are asking, Michael, is, well, so is the the raccoon becoming a different species as a result of all these experiences?
5: Well, you know, I'd say in some ways the raccoon is becoming a different species, and in some ways uh, we as human beings are also changing our lifestyle and our patterns uh, to accommodate them, right? That I think in some ways we kind of cohabit the city uh, together, how we kind of maintain our our, our garbage, the kind of food, you know the way we you know way we, we deal with waste management, the way we manage our, our urban gardens, things like uh, chickens, as one of the uh, other uh, gentlemen mentioned. You know these things are, are are we're kind of changing our lifestyle as well as them. And so you know certainly we can have things like neuroplasticity and um, epigenetics. But you know all, you know as a field, what psychology studies uh, on a fundamental level is learning and how experience and learning. Changes the organism, right? And, and and absolutely, raccoons are excellent learners. Um, and and you know, Mark,
4: I'm also just sort of wondering. I mean, so that's first of all, Canadians, as we know, are nicer. <laughs> than people in the U.S. So that that's like a pretty nice portrait of the uh, of the story. Although I will say that there were even in Toronto some stories of aggressive raccoons that people are the the late uh, Toronto Mayor Rob Ford confessed <laughs> confessed to the media at one point that his family was too frightened to take out their trash because these raccoons are out there. They're not you know uh they're making pretty clear what it is that they want i mean this isn't a raccoon this isn't an animal that's always going to be passive in its interactions with human beings
3: well if you have an intelligent animal and and the same by the way is true of seagulls that that from personal experience i mean they're different and if you start to watch them and observe them closely you're going to see differences if there's that level of intelligence and creativity uh coming back to your earlier point i mean plasticity itself is uh uh genetically uh genetically based. So if you are having great, if you're a raccoon who has a greater degree of plasticity, um, you are going to get genetic shift because that raccoon is going to be more successful, will raise more young, and so on and so forth. I'm not sure that you can make the argument for the converse because we already have a very complex tool set uh, and, and, uh, and a different means, a different capacity for manipulating our environment. I think the, the raccoon is adapting to us, we're not really adapting to the raccoon. But I would think that over time, if you give it enough time and we don't – and the raccoons don't somehow mysteriously disappear from, from urban and suburban environments, yes, those raccoons as opposed to raccoons somewhere off in the far woods are going to become more intelligent and in some ways more of a problem mm. <laughs> because they're, they're going to learn the ropes. I'm waiting for the day when Michael tells us that, uh, that we,
4: they've had their first breach of the raccoon-proof lock. Oh, sure. And, and then they'll learn how to start your car. Um, yep. uh, and, and, and so, Jay, maybe you have something to say about this, too, about how these interactions can go.
1: Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get too anthropomorphic about it. I mean, they're a raccoon. If you look at the range map of raccoons across North America, I mean, they're they're just so adaptable that they – What's amazing about them is that they can exist in pretty much any kind of environment. So regardless of what we're throwing at them in an urban, suburban, or rural environment, they're happy to take advantage of the opportunities that, th- that arise.
4: Um, but, I mean, maybe you could say a little bit more. I mean, as somebody who's, yeah, you've had the, the raccoons there at the center in the past. Um, I mean, it's not as though they won't be aggressive, right? I mean, they're... Oh, it, no. Yeah. No, they can be aggressive.
1: They're not an animal to be trifled with. This is a 30-pound animal. And uh, they will do just fine in battles. Uh, Well, let me tell a story, and I won't mention any names here. Okay. But (laughs) someone who I know at one time put a trail camera out in his backyard Mm -hmm. and would go to Stop and Shop and Shop, and Buy Chicken and stake it down into the ground. And one of the images that came up was he had this chicken staked into the ground. On one side of it was a bobcat. Mm. On the other side of it was a chicken. I mean, excuse me, was a raccoon. Mm -hmm. The raccoon was happily munching away at the chicken while a bobcat was just distraught and slapping at it. Raccoon paid no attention to it. Mm -hmm. Could have cared less. I mean, bobcat's a fairly formidable animal. Yeah. But he was second fiddle to that raccoon.
4: Right. These raccoons are tough. All right. So we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. Our guest will tell you a little bit more stories, uh, a few more stories about what raccoons can do. I also want to talk about some of this anthropomorphism that goes on. This is an animal with a face. And it communicates with us with its face. and bossy as hogs they make All right, we are back, uh, and we want to uh, talk to you, too, uh, about raccoons. If you want to talk to us, if you have stories, or if you have questions, uh, 860-275-7266. We can't promise that we will be able to answer every single raccoon question, but we certainly have a formidable group of experts here, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet at us at at WNPR, Colin. Uh, Joining us uh, from Toronto, the raccoon capital of North America, Michael Pettit, Associate Professor of History of Science and Psychology at the University of Toronto. Mark Seth Lenders with us, producer and presenter for Living on Earth, PRI's environmental news magazine. Jay Kaplan, director of the Roaring Brook Nature Center in Canton, also um, here with us. So, um, Mark, I'm going to start with you here just to talking a little bit about this, that, you know, uh, there's a very different experience, I think, I don't think I know this, there's a very different experience between looking into the face of a raccoon and, say, looking at a deer or something like that. I mean, a raccoon has a recognizable face. The raccoon seems to be able to change the expressions on its face, surely not in ways that I'm accurately recognizing all the time, but at least it knows I'm looking at it. Uh, uh, It's looking back at me and it's doing stuff with its face that I assume gives it some kind of power in guiding our interactions. Well, I think if you watch their faces, you'd probably find –
3: if you watch them closely, you would be likely to uh, find facial expressions that you do begin to recognize. Um, Certainly true of grizzly bears, and I think it may just as well be true of deer. They're not going to be uh, so much raising their eyebrows at you, but there are head angle cues and so on and so forth that that tend to be common to vertebrates with faces. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that – And and you've hit on something because the face is a major departure in many ways. For um, four-fifths of the time life was on Earth, there were no faces. We only have faces. Faces date back to the Cambrian. So you begin to have faces about 540-odd million years ago. It sounds like a long time except that there's probably been life on Earth for um, something like uh, 8 billion years. So it's actually really it's one-seventh of the time, one-eighth, something like that. And, and it's a unique thing. And we share certain things in common with animals with faces. Um, if I could go on a second about the sure. anthropomorphic notion. Um, from my point of view, when you say anthropomorphic, you're really uh, you're really engendering circular logic. Mm-hmm. We make the a priori assumption that we're fundamentally different from everything else on the planet. And then when we see traits in animals that look like us, we say, oh, that's an anthropomorphism. Um I I take umbrage with that. I just don't think that's a, a very productive way for us to look at animals. And I think if we look for commonalities, um, and I don't mean that in an emotive way. I mean if, we, if 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 you're trying to tell me your raccoon prefers Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, uh, that's kind of that's a but that's not that's not anthropomorphism. That's just that's just inventing out a whole cloth. If you see an animal. Uh, uh, raccoon or anything else that, that seems to have some emotive uh, relationship to its world that you recognize probably you're seeing something that's real. Raccoons are all libertarians. Um,
4: but uh, <laughs> I mean it just makes sense, right? Um, I, I want to ask some Michael some questions about this but before this we have uh, something coming in from Joanne and I feel as though this is going to turn into a Jay Kaplan uh, question somehow. This is Joanne in East Hampton. Hi, you're on the air.
6: Hi. So I have a little uh, farm here and I had, had three ducks Indian runners. I now have one. Um, I recently found the body of a duck in the area with no head and no feet and just the body. And from what I read on the internet, that indicates that it was a raccoon.
4: Um, Well, uh, Jay, uh,
1: any thoughts about this? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. You can read all kinds of things on the internet, Joanne. Um, first thing that comes to mind is a great horned owl. They take the heads off. There are so many different predators that will feed on your ducks. Raccoon, of course, is an option, but there are a lot of other options out there. I don't know about the feet part. That's a new one on me. But um, you have hawks, you have owls, you have uh, weasels, minks, fishers, um, bobcats, coyotes, neighborhood cats and dogs, lots of different things. Um, to my knowledge, raccoons do not just eat the head and the feet off a duck, but they will do substantially more than that.
5: Yeah.
4: So I, that doesn't really answer your question exactly, but there is uh, there coming uh, this fall to uh, NBC. There's Law and Order: Animal Crimes Unit, where they actually look at these things and try to figure out which animals are responsible. So uh, that could be a good plot for one. This the uh, the headless, footless duck. Uh, not to make light of that, obviously, it uh, must have been very traumatic for Joanne, obviously, to to lose the duck that way. So, um, Michael, I want to talk a little bit about um, you know the other thing about raccoons is. And and uh, we will I guess reject the term anthropomorphism here, but I mean you watch raccoons and you think wow, this thing is more like me than a lot of animals I could think of. I mean, one thing that raccoons do a lot is stand on their hind legs. I've even seen videos of them kind of kind of running bipedally for a short distance anyway. They stand on their hind legs. They've got these facial expressions, these highly dexterous hands. It takes them about two seconds to figure out how certain things work. I mean, they know the difference between a sliding door and a swinging door, like faster than I would recognize uh, the difference. So my understanding is one thing that ha- was has been thought in the past is why don't people, uh, people who are, say, I don't know, psychologists, uh, study raccoons, why, don't, why aren't they uh, great laboratory specimens? And there was an attempt to make them into laboratory specimens. Tell us how that went.
5: Sure. So the story, this is a you know, uh, hundred-year sort of history of kind of the forgetting of the raccoons. So <laughs> at the beginning of the 20th century, people weren't exactly sure what comparative psychology, experimental psychology, would look like. It was a fairly new discipline. And this is also uh, prior to the time that we sort of have uh, primatology, the study of kind of the great apes as a going concern, because getting um, the great apes into North America for sort of study under captivity was a great kind of technical and economic challenge. And so in in the early part of the 20th century, there's in in the journals of comparative psychology, journals of animal behavior, there's kind of all kinds of different studies of different species. And prior to kind of the real takeoff of primatology, a lot of people that were kind of Big in that field, were really keen on the raccoon, and there's this, a series of papers about the intelligence of raccoons. And you know, even in, in, in the archives of these scientists, we actually see them exchanging photographs of raccoons playing on bicycles. So you know, the side of play and anthropomorphism was also um, at work there. And but it, but raccoons were very uh, difficult creatures to maintain, especially around spring. Uh, they uh, were prone to what one scientist called the wanderlust, which was the Um, retreating from the lab. But there was some interesting comparative studies where they would kind of set up different problems for um, rats and dogs and raccoons and even human children. And what they found was that uh, although uh, the dog can maintain um, sort of the memory of a stimulus for longer than a raccoon, one thing that the raccoon could do, which only the human children could do in in these studies, was actually they could remember um, sort of the relationship between a stimulus and a response even when their, kind of their bodily orientation changed. And so even uh, the people that were radically anti-anthropomorphic, and here I'm thinking especially of, of John Watson, who is sort of the founder of behaviorism, he sort of says, raccoons do these odd things that I can't quite explain. But because we can't explain the neurological mechanism, because of the nature of the science at the time, and we don't want to indulge in speculation about anthropomorphism, we should leave the animal alone for now. And so basically there's this outpouring of articles with raccoons from about 1906 to 1915. And then there's kind of, in the scientific literature and specifically the psychological literature, there's kind of an absence of, uh, of discussions of the species um, for almost 100 years after that.
4: Um, and yeah, and just to sort of go back to the thing you were saying before, because I was reading about that study too, that um, the, what the raccoons could do, uh, although not over long periods of time, but, you know, for, for a dog to sort of, keep uh, a task in mind or keep something in mind. The dog's got to look right at it Uh, and then the dog can, in fact, quote unquote, think about it for a long time. But the raccoons could be distracted. They could be scrabbling around in their cages or whatever uh, and and s- redirect their attention and, and they would seem to have retained that. So, and Michael, that really kind of, th- there then became this question and, and some allegations made about whether or not raccoons can be said to have a mind, right? Uh, can they learn by uh, imitation? Uh, do do they, do they have a, a mind in a way that maybe uh, a, a lower order of intelligence animal w- wouldn't have? Where do you come out on this?
5: Well, you know, I think it was a very particular time in the field. You know, at the same time, there's also great concerns because uh, of popular nature writing of the, of the nature faker controversy, right? And and the point of behaviorism is not that we did not possess minds, but that given uh, the apparatus and the technology we had at the time, we couldn't talk about minds, talking about mind with speculation. So I think um, certainly this, I think uh, raccoons have, you know, what we'd now kind of call cognitions, and certainly over the past 20 or 30 years, the field of comparative cognition, right, how different species reason and think in species-specific ways has been an exploiting field of research.
4: Um, I want to talk a little bit about what happens when people try to uh, put raccoons in places where they really were not meant to be. By the way, if you have other questions about raccoons or stories that you need to get off your chest uh, or perhaps uh, crimes that you want Jay Kaplan to solve for you, 860-275. I mean, they have to be animal related. It's, it's, they have to be raccoon related. 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Uh, Jay will be one of the stars of this new Law & Order series uh, debuting on, on network television this fall. You can also tweet at us at WNPR Collins. So I'm not sure who knows which story, but Mark, I think you might know the story of, um, uh, speaking of how cute, uh, raccoons are, uh, d- the country of Japan, first of all, loves cute things. Uh, and it's my understanding that at one point, uh, perhaps, perhaps driven by some cartoon character, they thought oh, it would be great to have raccoons in Japan. Do you know this story?
3: I, I, think was, uh, uh, I think it was a I think it was a a cartoon character and if I remember correctly and I haven't heard the story in a long time, but if I remember correctly, they then developed because people were letting these things go all over the place. They developed a substantial population of feral
4: uh, raccoons, which have wreaked havoc. Is that uh, right. is that correct? They're like, yeah, you know, that's, yeah. climbing up all over these lovely vermilion temples and stuff like that, and, you know, ripping into them. And stuff well, like they that. have that little mask for a reason. You know, they they, right. they, they look mm-hmm. like bandits. There, there's one piece of anthropomorphism I'll support. And, and and Michael, the same thing happened in Germany, right? He said they were brought in for for fur.
5: Absolutely. So you know, we kind of forget this, but certainly in the first, you know, in the 19-teens, 1920s, um, in, and before then, you know, uh, raccoon fur was incredibly prized in, uh, for winter coats. And so you set up these raccoon farms. As I said, raccoons are kind of prone, prone to the wanderlust, and, and, and in Germany, they got out. And now in both kind of the German countryside, but also in German cities, there's uh, real issues with invasive raccoon species.
4: You know, Jay, one thing that that I've now – now that I've watched this documentary, Raccoon Nation, and I mean I've been watching these raccoons in my yard, but, um, you know, and so I was very impressed when the raccoon who's been on my deck – uh, wanted to come in the house uh, and figured out not only how the sliding door worked, but there was something about the knob or the, little, the handle up there, and then realized that if it stood up on the frame uh, of the inner frame of the door, that it could almost reach up to the handle, stretching up. But since then, I've seen these raccoons. That's nothing, right? These raccoons are like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. They can squeeze through these little... I mean, they, can, they really kind of have this incredible ability, acrobatically and physically, to get where they want to go.
1: Oh, they are. But I have to ask first, I have to ask Michael, was this John Watson, also the sidekick of Sherlock Holmes? (laughs) Because that's that's important for my crime series. (laughs) But uh, going back to your question, Colin, it's amazing what they can do. We we get calls frequently about raccoons nesting in chimneys. Mm -hmm. Uh, People think they're stuck in there. Mm. They're not stuck in there. They go up and down at will. Squirrels get stuck in there. Birds get stuck in there. But raccoons, a chimney is just like an artificial tree. And if you cut down the dead trees in your yard the trees with cavities they're happy to move into your your chimney they will squeeze through tiny spaces they are incredible climbers i mean they will climb up the side of a house climb up a drain pipe climb up places where you wouldn't think they could climb up and people often ask call us and say i think i have raccoons in my attic and I, i tell them well just go out at dusk and at a distance watch the roof you'll find out if they are in the
4: attic or not um, all right. Uh, we've got a call coming in from uh, Stephen in New Britain. Hi, Stephen. You're on the air.
6: Uh, hello. Yes, I have a question about a raccoon encounter that I did have. I work at a local hotel in the greater, greater Harvard area. No names, no pack drill. Um, I discovered one very early one morning a raccoon who was swimming in the 50 gallon drum that is used to carry the grease to the hotel, which is recycled and turned into soap, etc. Uh, he had obviously fallen in after going exploring. Uh, I sank a shovel into the grease bucket and allowed him to escape. He clambered off the shovel and wandered very soggily off into the woods. Certainly the best smelling creature in the forest that day. Um, I'm wondering, did he manage to make it out alive? <laughs> Do you think the guy survived it?
4: This is a question that would be impossible to answer. Does anyone want to take a stab at it? Say again? Uh, I'm just looking. Um, no, Mark. No, Mark. Shake his head. Well, I mean, the, one, one thing we could say is that raccoons do have predators. There are things that eat raccoons. And uh, a, a, a greasy-smelling and perhaps not completely fully functional and mobile raccoon would be... Uh, what's mo- um, uh, Jay, what's most likely to eat a raccoon? Well... A fisher. We know that.
1: Right? Well, occasionally. I mean... Great horned owl, if they got them unaware, mm. bear possibly, mm. bobcat occasionally, um, coyote occasionally, but the primary predator on raccoons are people. Yeah, either with their cars or in other ways.
4: And and, and you know, and, and Stephen probably the more important thing about your story. It, it, it is not so much whether the raccoon made it back or not because we will we'll never know. But I mean, just the fact that this raccoon it, it kind of goes back to what Jay was saying before. If you see a raccoon in a situation and you think the raccoon can't get out of that situation, you're probably going to turn out to be wrong. <laughs> I mean, most of the situations they're in, they're in because they want to be in the situation, probably not necessarily uh, swimming around in your grease fat. But most of the times, if they're someplace, they wanted to be that place. And when they want to get out, uh, they're kind of amazing. I mean, it was nice of you to give the shovel to help the raccoon, but I wouldn't be surprised if that raccoon couldn't get out of that vat on its own anyway. we you going to say something?
3: Yeah, I, it's almost as if raccoons can multitask. Um, I, I would call it ADD of raccoon, um, that they can keep a lot of different things. I mean, the, the idea that they can look at a light that's going to have food behind it, get distracted, come back 25 seconds later, that's actually a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and as you pointed out, the dog has to has to keep looking. The raccoon, not the fact that they want to get into our houses and habitations at all, is rather interesting because it's blind to them. Um, mm-hmm. They're not necessarily coming in because they smell food. They're coming in out of pure curiosity on the po- on the possibility there might be something of interest there—food or, or shelter—or um, otherwise, why why bother? And and what kind of mind wants to think in those terms and figure go to all that effort to get in?
4: <laughs> uh, what kind of mind indeed alright let's take a call from Tia in West Hartford hi Tia you're on the air
6: hi um, I've got a relationship I live in the suburbs and you know we leave food out for, for neighborhood cats and the raccoons come and eat some of it and they run off whenever anybody comes near them and then a couple of years ago there was one very very young one and she just kind of adopted us and the thing that she's done that's just that blew all of our minds was one day I was out with her evening. I was out with her and it was really cold out and I had my sleeves pulled up into my, my hands pulled up into my sleeves. And she she was just frantic to find my hands. (laughs) And it it made me like, it never occurred to me that, that the raccoon would be so aware of me and my body and everything. And that she would, almost like an, a, a way that she identified with me.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And she was she was okay once she found my hands, but she was really upset that she thought my hands were gone.
4: Yeah, Tia, this might not end well, um, <laughs> this story that They're, you're telling.
6: Like a cross between a monkey and a, and a dog. Yeah. They're the most amazing animals.
4: So, Michael, maybe there's some things we should say about physical contact uh, with raccoons. And I mean, they do have an incredible curiosity and, and an awareness of their environment. If you change something about their environment, I'd never heard the whole idea of putting your hands in your sleeves and upsetting them on that basis. Although you you could imagine them being kind of hand conscious, given how big a deal their own hands are. Uh, but but, I, Michael, do you want to say anything about just sort of human raccoon contact and how far it should go?
5: Sure. I think you know. I think we're definitely getting to the point where we want to establish some boundaries in this relationship um that you know I think that, you, know, uh, you know I always sort of always grew up uh thinking that raccoons were um largely if not exclusively nocturnal creatures um certainly in my neighborhood now they seem to be- uh not so afraid to kind of venture out in the daytime. You know, we often would have kind of raccoons in our decks, and we kind of, you know, we tried the radio, we tried putting out a bit of vinegar to dissuade them. You know, we tried to make some loud noises, and nothing really fazed them. And so, uh, absolutely, I think people should, in general, be a little bit cautious with the with the physical contact. Although I think, um, so issues of, of of rabies, but the other issue is um, they do carry certain diseases in their scat, which can be uh, very dangerous to human beings. So. That's something else to sort of uh, be aware of.
4: Um, uh, We actually put the radio out on the deck today just so that the raccoons could listen to the show. Uh, Fair enough. uh, But uh, we didn't really think of it as something that used to drive drive them away. Um, So, you know, Jay, I guess maybe one thing that some people might be dealing, thinking about – Maybe even somebody that I know pretty well might be thinking about is okay, so you get the raccoons on your deck, and you know, with Tia's case, they're like, you know, they're taking the cat food and they like the cat food, or uh, and and they're not really doing anything too horrible. So, me, uh, maybe it's just sort of a personal choice. I mean, some people are going to call an exterminator or something, right? Some people are going to maybe try to trap it and relocate it. Or, I mean, what what do people do? What should people do if they have a raccoon that they don't 100% want? in quite the proximity that they have it.
1: Well, with all due respect to Tia, putting cat food out on the deck to attract wild raccoons and other animals is not always the best idea. Nothing good comes of it. We find that raccoons that spend more and more time in close proximity to people do not live as long. Um, There is actually a state statute here in Connecticut that states if you trap a raccoon on your property, it either must be released on site. Or it has to be put down. Mm. Um, People are horrified to learn of that because if they've just caught a raccoon nesting in their attic, they don't want to release it in their backyard because it will be back in the attic before they're back in the house. Um, However, that is the state law. And the reason for that is because um, the opportunity is to trap a sick raccoon and release it into an area where it can then spread disease. Um, That that is a significant problem. The reason rabies I don't know if there's rabies in Toronto. Michael can tell us that. But the reason that the rabies epidemic arrived in Connecticut was when supposedly uh, hunting clubs in the New York area brought up raccoons from down south where rabies is a concern and released them into New York and Pennsylvania. And from there, it spread like wildfire across the northeast because the raccoons up here had
4: no immunity to the disease. And so that's uh, – I'll get to you in a second, Mark. But so, but this is an interesting point, Jay, which is also that our raccoon population took a huge hit at that point, right? A big, I mean – Big hit. Yeah.
1: But, but now um, the reservoir of, of those raccoons that survived have built up more of an immunity to – to the rabies virus, and now we have a lot more raccoons than we did, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago when it first arrived. They're coming back. Yeah, Mark, what were you going to say? I, I doubt its immunity. I think it might be something else because I don't believe you can acquire
3: uh, immunity to rabies, that no vertebrate can. I think you, rabies once contracted, so raccoons can, can, well, they can carry it for a period of time, but it'll kill them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going it's, it's, it's to kill them. Well, They're not going to live out a normal lifespan. I don't think so.
1: No record of possum rabies in the state. Then They, don't they are 500 times less likely to Contract it in the first place. It's well, just oh, yeah, a, they don't contract, right? It, but, exactly. but, but that's that's okay. a little different, different thing. Right? But
3: the the one of the reasons we have so much rabies in Connecticut is Connecticut has refused to put out to spend the money on rabies baits in places, and there are whole countries that have done this where rabies baits are put out, which inoculate the wildlife uh, uh, against rabies. You can eliminate rabies,
4: and isn't isn't that also done? Um, with uh, with parasites, also they put out marshmallows or something. Michael, this may this story may have come from. I can't remember where this story came from, but uh, Michael, you may know it that the raccoons like marshmallows, and so they put uh, sort of anti-parasite medications in the marshmallows. Am I making this up?
5: I'm not, I'm not sure, but uh, it sounds familiar.
4: All right, so I'm going to take a quick break here. Uh, we'll come back. We've got some calls from Suzanne and Andy and people like that, and we'll be back. So scared the Raccoon. That girl so scared. The
6: that girl so scared. I'm scared of the raccoon. i scared, scared, scared of, of the bias. raccoon. i scared of the raccoon. She's scared of the
5: raccoon.
2: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bradley Cooper. For show pages, articles, and night vision videos of the here and now staff knocking over garbage cans, go to our website, wnpr.org Colin. On tomorrow's show, very, very short literature. And now, back to Colin.
4: Right. We're talking about raccoons right now, heading down the home stretch with Michael Pettit, Associate Professor of History of Science and Psychology at the University of Toronto, Mark Sethlender, Professor and Presenter for Living on Earth, PRI's environmental news magazine, Jake Kaplan, Director of the Roaring Brook Nature Center in Canton. So, uh, Mark, uh, we have decided during the break that you will issue a general public service announcement about touching wild animals. You don't want to touch any wild animal,
3: um, whatever your, your your chosen attitude towards wildlife is. You don't want to touch them. You don't want them touching you. You don't want your children near them. Um, it's it's dangerous for everybody. And that's just a good rule of thumb.
4: Um, it's also dangerous, uh, Jay, for your pets, like your dog. Um, because your dog, if you're walking, if your dog's around the yard and the raccoon's around the yard, they, they're going to have a whole other set of encounters.
1: Right. That's true. That's true. And of course it's not only true of dogs, but it's true of cats. Mm-hmm. Um, we know of Situations in where cats have killed, excuse me, raccoons have killed cats at night over a food bowl.
4: Um, so, so this is all uh, getting a little bit grim. But we have to be sure that people uh, don't uh, make some big mistakes here, just because the raccoons are cute. Michael, I want to ask you a question, and th- yeah, this is like a hard thing to quantify. But reading your work and a lot of the other work coming out of Toronto, uh, and and watching things like Raccoon Nation. One feeling I got is it almost seems as though we know more about the whereabouts and behaviors and, and roaming patterns of, like, sharks and wolves and things like that than we do about the raccoons. Raccoons almost seem a tiny bit understudied. I, I don't know. Am I on any kind of firm footing about this?
5: Well, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, they're, in some ways they're a very adorable, um, cute species, as we've been discussing. But in some ways— um, in, this, in the scale of things, you know, urban wildlife doesn't have the same kind of uh, uh, celebrity status when it comes to science and natural history uh, that other species do. And yet they are, as people have been indicating, um, an object of fascination for people. Uh, they do have um, serious public health issues attached to them. And so I think uh, the records have been historically understudied, but I think people are increasingly um, interested in them as a species. Um,
4: um watching uh, that uh, the documentary too I was sort of amused it kind of was said as a throwaway but uh, there's this um, thing being done with the kind of the the collars the kind of media impregnated uh, collars so that uh, the the fact the raccoon behavior could be studied uh, and tracked from afar Uh, but somebody said they had to be pretty careful to make a collar that a raccoon couldn't get off Um, this isn't like putting a collar on a wolf or something (laughs) the raccoons they're problem solvers right I mean one of the things they're going to do is like how do I take this off um
5: it's something to play with
4: yeah yeah something to play with exactly something to play with by trial and error and just sort of see what it is all right so we've got some calls coming in here i want to um jump over here to suzanne in new milford hi suzanne you're on the air
0: Hi. Um, I just, uh, we don't really like to have the raccoons around, but they always seem to be around. And um, one year we, we had, apparently we, there were babies. We didn't know what it was, woke us up at night, and then we had it for a week or two, when there were a whole group outside sounded like monkeys. They were just like screeching and having such a good time. They looked like they were fighting, but quickly we saw they, they were just playing. And, but the, the noise, I would not have believed that that, that that was a raccoon um and so you know it's just maybe a certain time in their life that they do that and um, we have had them come right in the kitchen when we leave the door open for maybe another animal to come in or out and surprise there's the raccoon braving his way into the kitchen um and they will go away i mean they they are afraid of you to some but not they don't go very far you know they're not terrified of you and and (laughs) but what we really think is interesting is the way they eat like if they find sunflower seeds or something cat food they um they they'll keep looking all around and and they they feel the food with their feet and mm. you know with their hands or whatever they've got and and It's just amazing to watch them they They look like the people who are trying to get the the motion stuff for the for the wii games or you know trying to get that electronic response that's you know based on senses mm. because they just they looking all around they're not looking at their food but they're just shoveling it in and um we don't like them but we find ourselves um you know kind of saying oh did you was that the one with the reddish hair or was that the one with the long tail? i mean we we continue to to allow ourselves to deal with them you know even though we don't don't want to we try to be callous and say is that the one that would make a really good hat you mm-hmm. know um you know w- w- you know that somebody would like to eat him or something maybe he should be like invasive species and they're talking about eating them or something but we still Look at them, and we 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 just see something really uh compelling and um and I'm glad you had this show all
4: right uh, well, yeah I just so as long as you understand that when you see the thing about the hat, the raccoons will not understand that the word that the raccoons will not say. Oh, she's thinking about making us into a hat. We have to get out of here. Um, So, you know, one thing we haven't really mentioned, and maybe, Michael, you could just say something about this very quickly because she's talking about a litter of kits, and we're almost out of time here. Um, This is a a pretty, as animals go, a pretty long-term growing up process, right? And the mom and the litters often stay together for a year?
5: Uh, Yes, and, you know, in the wild, raccoons tend to live for only about, uh 3 to 4 years. And so uh you you will often see kind of these uh and it's the mo- it's the mother and the kids and you but you will sort of see these uh, uh family troops um going through different neighborhoods.
4: All right. Well, they're, they're millennial raccoons, so they're slow, to, slow to launch, uh, often uh, just stay with the parents for a while. Uh, all right. So I don't think I dare ask another question, but I, first of all, want to thank Betsy Kaplan for producing the show. Let me tell you who you've been listening to. Michael Pettit is associate professor of history of science and psychology at the University of Toronto, the, racco- the raccoon capital of North America. Come for the raccoons. Stay for the delightful restaurants. Uh, Mark Seth Linder is a producer and presenter for Living on Earth, PRI's environmental news magazine. And Jay Kaplan is the director of the Roaring Brook Nature Center in Canton, where right now they don't have any raccoons. But I guarantee What do you have? What's there right now? Oh, we have a lot of other things. People want to see a raccoon. There is a raccoon, a captive
1: raccoon at the Children's Museum on Troutbrook Drive. His name is Loki. Been there for quite some time.
4: All right. And you want to see a raccoon, just give me a call. All right. Uh, I can set that up. Uh, all right. Thanks very much for joining us. You guys are all great. Uh, don't uh, touch wild animals, no matter how cute they are. They have all kinds of things on them. Not just rabies, too, but all kinds of things on them. We just talk
6: and play games at the barbecue. Hey, Mr. Raccoon,
3: come back soon.
2: Hey, can you pass the peanut butter?
1: You want the salad dressing?
2: Who put salad dressing on tuna?
3: I
1: don't know, it could be Lithuanian.
2: Pass the peanut butter.
1: Peanut butter?
2: Peanut
0: butter!
4: Be no better?
0: Peanut, fine, pass the salad dressing.